Hey, it's Guy here. So imagine that you suddenly develop a strange illness. You're tired all the time. It's painful to exercise or even walk. And week after week, it just gets worse. And the scariest part? Your doctors don't even have a diagnosis. So what do you do? Well, this week's episode is called Getting Better, and it originally aired in February of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, getting better. Jen, can you hear me? It's Guy Raz. Yeah. How are you? I've been getting slowly better over the last five years, so... This is Jennifer Brea, and by better, she means a bit healthier. Jen's a filmmaker now, but seven years ago, before everything about her life changed forever, she was a grad student at Harvard. It was sort of my temple and my home, and... I thought that that's what I would do for the rest of my life, Mm. that I would be a professor. And everything seemed to be falling into its right place. I was with my boyfriend at the time, later my fiancé, now my husband, Omar. Omar and Jen loved to hike and camp and travel all over the world, which is how they ended up trekking in Kenya. But a couple days into that trip, Omar caught a bug. He got really sick and he was throwing up the whole time and had really high fever. He eventually recovered, but as soon as they got back, it was Jen's turn. She got really sick. And I had a fever for 10 days that at its highest was 104.7 degrees. Wow. D- did you did you go to the doctor at that point? I didn't go to the doctor because usually when you have a fever, it's viral and they just tell you to go back home and drink chicken soup. And I just stayed home and I thought I would just get better like... You always do. And at first, it seemed to work. After those 10 days, her fever broke. But the next day, she started to feel really dizzy. I could not walk to the bathroom without gripping the walls. And from that point on, Jen started to get sick all the time. I was getting some type of infection almost every month. That's sort of when everything started to change. Because even when she would recover from the infections, she never felt like she did before she got sick. She was always tired, her muscles hurt, even walking became painful. I started having numbness on the right side of my face that then started to become, you know, the right side of my body. And then I was at a restaurant with some friends and after dinner when the check came, I couldn't sign my name. Like, I was staring at the check, and I didn't know how to tell my hand how to draw the letter J. So throughout that first year, you were going to doctors basically to say, hey, something weird's going on. Exactly. Um, I kept trying to find help. I kept going to doctors, and first it was sort of saying, well, you probably just have an inner ear infection or... You're probably just a little tired. And then it started to become something more like maybe you have some anxiety and you're probably depressed. Jen went to every specialist she could find, from infectious disease doctors to endocrinologists to cardiologists, and finally to a neurologist who said she might have something called conversion disorder that my symptoms were being caused by a distant trauma that I could not remember. And I pushed him on this a little bit because I thought, okay, you're trying to explain my neurological symptoms, but this all began with a really high fever, and I've had all of these infections, and are those also psychosomatic? And he said, yes, everything that you've been experiencing is psychosomatic, that the symptoms are real, but that they have no biological cause. How did you, how'd you feel when, when, when you heard that? Um, a word that I can't say on radio. 
I mean, my first reaction was, that doesn't make any sense. It was the first time that anyone had ever doubted my own story, my, my own witness and account of my body. And then my second reaction was, well, if I really have a psychological disorder, maybe one of the symptoms of the psychological disorder is that I would have a hard time accepting it. And so I thought I just wanted to get better. I just wanted to get back to my life. And anything that was going to help me get better, I would accept. So that afternoon, Jen walked out of her neurologist's office determined to get better. The doctors she'd been seeing were saying, just try exercising. So she decided to fight her physical pain and walk home. And um, as soon as I walked through the door, I collapsed and I couldn't get up for four months. (sighs) That was kind of this big gating moment for me because up until that point, I would get sick and then I would get better. But I've never been the same since that walk home. I've never been any better than I was that day. There's a pretty good chance that you might know somebody or have heard of somebody like Jen Brea. Her story isn't all that uncommon. Because there are still so many unanswered questions in medicine. Diseases we don't understand, others we can't cure, at least not yet. So today on the show, we're going to explore some of the ideas out there about getting better, how doctors, researchers, and even patients are trying to change medicine to find better answers. What I was grappling with felt so big and so terrifying that I wouldn't survive it. The fact that other people had gone through that and had survived gave me hope that I would be able to find a way. We're going to come back to Jen Brea later in the show and find out how she eventually got the right diagnosis. But first, how do you even begin to diagnose a chronic condition that is impossible to see or even measure? So can can you describe like a typical patient that comes to see you? The typical patient who comes to our clinic has seen two or three doctors before they've come to us. They've seen their pediatrician or their family doctor. And when nothing's working, they, they come to us. This is Elliot Crane. He's a pediatric anesthesiologist. What I do predominantly at the present time is pain management for children. Now, most of us think of pain as a symptom of an injury or an illness. But Elliot's patients are children with chronic pain, pain that lasts a lot longer than it should. Our typical patient has had their problem for six months to multiple years. They're missing school. They're not going out and playing with their friends. They're not going to the mall on weekends. Their lives are completely off the rails. And a lot of these kids did have something that caused the pain at first. But after that problem that caused the pain goes away, it heals, the pain doesn't go away. The nerves have changed. The nervous system has rewired itself, (laughs) even though the inciting problem is long gone. And in those cases, he says, pain is no longer a symptom. It's actually the disease. Here's Elliot Crane on the TED stage. That was the experience of my patient Chandler. She was 16 years old last year when I met her, and she aspired to be a professional dancer. And during the course of one of her dance rehearsals, she fell on her outstretched arm and sprained her wrist. Now, you would probably imagine, as she did, that a wrist sprain is a trivial event in a person's life. But in Chandler's case, that was the beginning of the story. This is what her arm looked like when she came to my clinic about three months after her sprain. Purplish in color, it was cadaverically cold to the touch. The muscles were frozen, paralyzed. The pain had spread from her wrist to her hands, to her fingertips, from her wrist up to her elbow, almost all the way to her shoulder. But the worst part was that she had allodynia. The lightest touch of her arm, the touch of a hand, the touch even of a sleeve of a garment as she put it on, caused excruciating, burning pain. How can the nervous system get this so wrong? Well, the nervous system has plasticity. It changes and it morphs in response to stimuli. That's, in fact, what happens with chronic pain, and that's why pain becomes its own disease. 
So what's going on? That's the million-dollar question. I suspect in the end, maybe in a decade, we'll have identified some sort of a gene that gets turned on or gets turned off and allows pain to become chronified. Is it, is it common for doctors to understandably just kind of dismiss it as psychological? Oh, it's absolutely. For doctors, for teachers, you know, um, somebody can have a surgical procedure, maybe a hernia operation. And 5 or 10% of people will develop persistent chronic pain even after the incision is completely healed and there's no residual hernia that anybody can find. And the pain is still there, and the pain can be very, very disabling. And it's oftentimes attributed to a psychological or psychiatric condition. And I must say, it's especially the case that it's attributed to a mental disorder if the patient is a woman and if the physician is a man. Wow. I mean, for a patient, that must be so incredibly frustrating to to not be taken seriously just because there, there isn't an obvious injury or, or illness or, you know, something wrong with them. Well... Pain is, is what the patient tells you it is. We, I can't measure it like I can measure a blood count or a temperature or something like that. If somebody comes in and says, you know, I think I have a fever, and you take their temperature and it's 98.6, you can say, well, no, you don't have a fever. But if somebody comes in and says, I'm having terrible pain in my back, and they have a normal physical examination, you can't say, you're not having pain in your back. They are. It is what they say it is. Hmm. And that's very frustrating. And of course, it leads to all sorts of misinterpretations. You probably imagine that the nervous system in the body is hardwired like your house. In your house, wires run in the wall from the light switch to a junction box in the ceiling and from the junction box to the light bulb. And when you turn the switch on, the light goes on. And when you turn the switch off, the light goes off. So people imagine the nervous system is just like that. But the situation, of course, in the human body is far more complicated than that. It's almost as if somebody came into your home and rewired your wall so that the next time you turned on the light switch, the toilet flushed three doors down, or your dishwasher went on, or your computer monitor turned off. Well, what do we do about that? We treat these patients in a rather crude fashion at this point in time. We treat them with symptom-modifying drugs, painkillers, which are frankly not very effective for this kind of pain. And most importantly, we use a rigorous and often uncomfortable process of physical therapy and occupational therapy to retrain the nerves in the nervous system to respond normally to the activities and sensory experiences that are part of everyday life. Dr. Elliot Crane, in a moment, he'll explain how we can change the way we treat chronic pain by changing the way we diagnose it. Today on the show, getting better, ideas about medicine, conventional wisdom, and how a lot of it is changing, and fast. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to GoToMeeting, the collaborative meeting platform that makes it easy to move work forward. Trusted by over 18 million monthly users, GoToMeeting lets you connect on the go from any device from anywhere in the world. Learn how your company can make the switch today at GoToMeeting.com. Support also comes from the American Petroleum Institute. America's natural gas and oil industry is committed to creating a better future through innovative technologies and greener practices. Natural gas provides an established source for energy generation, so you can power everything from your cell phone to your coffee pot. Text ENERGY to 73075 to learn how they're powering past impossible. Hi, I'm Daniel Alarcón, host of NPR's Spanish-language podcast, Radio Ambulante. This week, a year after the earthquakes that devastated the country, Mexico is still dealing with the aftermath. Schools were especially damaged, and the government promised to rebuild them fast. But two journalists discovered that the truth about that reconstruction is much more complicated. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, Getting Better. 
ideas about medicine, conventional wisdom, and how a lot of it is changing and fast. And we were just hearing from Dr. Elliot Crane, who's at Stanford, about the challenges of treating chronic pain. And one of the challenges, he says, is making sure that doctors understand it much better than they do today. Getting the medical profession to think about chronic pain and to understand chronic pain is a big task that's going to be a generational uh, task. The problem is, is that it's still a minority of medical schools in this country who have incorporated pain into the curriculum. So that's a real problem. We're not teaching people about pain. They certainly have cancer and heart disease or diabetes as their curriculum. But pain, there's more patients in this country who have chronic pain than have cancer and diabetes and heart disease put together. That's incredible. I mean, do you think that in, in 50 years or, or 100 years from now, we're going to look back on, on how chronic pain was diagnosed and, and just sort of think that we were doing it wrong? Well, I don't think we'll think we were doing it wrong, but we're going to be doing it very, very differently. Pain is today kind of like, I think, what cancer was like 60 or 70 years ago. Cancer is not one disease. It's a thousand different diseases that have certain things in common. And I think pain is going to be seen as the same kind of a thing. We talk about pain as if it's one entity, but it's not one entity. There's a thousand different kinds of pain. Unfortunately, we only have one or two or three classes of medications that we can use against it. And if you go back to cancer in the 1950s, there were only one or two or three drugs, and they were very primitive drugs that could be used against cancer. And it, it worked some of the time, but most of the time it didn't. Hmm. Do, do you think we'll, we'll eventually get to a point where what is now being misdiagnosed or maybe not properly diagnosed, whether that will actually change? I'm a total optimist. I think sooner or later, people will figure out why some people sprain their ankles and develop lifelong disabling chronic pain, and we'll figure out why other people don't. And then once we understand the biology, it's only then a matter of time before we can develop new drugs to interrupt that process and prevent pain from happening. Now, that's not going to be in my lifetime for sure, but it's important that we invest in it. The NIH budget for pain research is vanishingly small. Uh, we spend about 10 times more money on Halloween candy than we spend on pain research. As soon as the society makes up its mind that this is as important as cancer, then I think we stand a chance of solving the problem. Elliot Crane, he's a doctor and professor at Stanford University Medical Center. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. So sometimes getting better results in medicine isn't just about developing new technology or drugs. Sometimes getting better results is about looking at patients in a different way. Yes, exactly. This is Dorothy Roberts. Professor of Africana Studies and Law and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. About 15 years ago, Dorothy had an experience when she was pregnant with her fourth child. I was 44 years old when I had him, and I was considered to be high-risk, high maternal age. So her doctor had her sign up for a clinical trial. That involved a genetic test. And one of the first questions she was asked was about her race. They just asked me to check the box, and my question is, why use race? In other words, why use race when it doesn't tell us anything about our genes? Here's Dorothy Roberts on the TED stage. Well, doctors tell me they're using race as a shortcut. It's a crude but convenient proxy for more important factors like muscle mass, enzyme level, genetic traits they just don't have time to look for. But race is a bad proxy. In many cases, race adds no relevant information at all. It's just a distraction. Race medicine also leaves patients of color especially vulnerable to harmful biases and stereotypes. And if you find race-specific medicine surprising, wait till you learn that many doctors in the United States still use an updated version of a diagnostic tool 
that was developed by a physician during the slavery era, a diagnostic tool that is tightly linked to justifications for slavery. Dr. Samuel Cartwright practiced in the Deep South before the Civil War, and he was a well-known expert on what was then called Negro medicine. He promoted the racial concept of disease, that people of different races suffer from different diseases and experience common diseases differently. Cartwright argued in the 1850s that slavery was beneficial for black people for medical reasons. He claimed that because black people had lower lung capacity than whites, forced labor was good for them. He wrote in a medical journal, it is the red vital blood sent to the brain that liberates their minds when under the white man's control. And it is the want of sufficiency of red vital blood that chains their minds to ignorance and barbarism when in freedom. To support this theory, Cartwright helped to perfect a medical device for measuring breathing called the spirometer to show the presumed deficiency in black people's lungs. Today, doctors still uphold Cartwright's claim that black people as a race have lower lung capacity than white people. Some even use a modern-day spirometer that actually has a button labeled race, so the machine adjusts the measurement for each patient according to his or her race. It's a well-known function called correcting for race. Wow, that's, that's crazy. So, so this tool, this uh, spirometer, which they used during, during the time of slavery, a, a version of it is still being used by some doctors today? Absolutely. And in fact, part of the argument now for paying attention to race is because of this long legacy of discriminating against black patients. There's this racial concept of disease that comes out of slavery that people of different races have peculiar diseases that sort of belong to that race. Okay, so so where has this led us? I mean, like, what are some of the modern consequences of making assumptions and, and, and you know, making a diagnosis using race? Well, one example that comes out of the medical literature is the true case of a little African-American girl who had persistent respiratory problems. And you can look at her file and see two-year-old African-American girl, you know, back in emergency room for respiratory problems, four-year-old African-American girl with another pneumonia. And then when she was eight years old, a radiologist looked at the x-ray of her chest without knowing her race and said, who's the kid with cystic fibrosis? Now, if she had been white, the doctors would have diagnosed her right away, you know, as a baby, maybe, as having cystic fibrosis and treated accordingly. And is that because, statistically speaking, white people are much more likely to have cystic fibrosis? Yes, that's true. So because she was black, they assumed she couldn't have cystic fibrosis, even though she had the symptoms of cystic fibrosis. You know, I wonder about certain examples that we hear of, like Tay-Sachs, right? Mm Mm-hmm happens to affect uh, people of European Jewish ancestry or that sickle cell anemia affects people you know, from North Africa or the Mediterranean. So, I mean, what would be a better way to start to think about those things? Well, for one thing, just in the way you asked the question, you slipped from a relatively small group that was not a racial group. You mentioned Ashkenazi Jews, and then you also put together North Africa and the Mediterranean, Mm, which is not a racial group. So one better way would be to do away with these large social groupings and consider people's actual ancestry and how ancestry is related to disease. I I mean, things like geography or, or lifestyle, those would be more relevant. Well, that's the basic reason why we find that certain races have a higher propensity to a particular disease because the disease very often is some consequence of a genetic mutation that was advantageous in that particular part of the world. 
And so linking the disease to race is a very crude way of thinking about how certain populations evolved to be predisposed to certain diseases or resistant to certain diseases. The problem with race medicine extends far beyond misdiagnosing patients. Its focus on innate racial differences in disease diverts attention and resources from the social determinants that cause appalling racial gaps in health, lack of access to high-quality medical care, food deserts in poor neighborhoods, exposure to environmental toxins, high rates of incarceration, and experiencing the stress of racial discrimination. You see, race is not a biological category that naturally produces these health disparities because of genetic difference. Race is a social category that has staggering biological consequences, but because of the impact of social inequality on people's health. So does race ever help a doctor in diagnosing a condition? I don't think it does. I think that race is always standing in for something else, Hmm. and it would always be better for the doctor to learn that something else. So, you know, instead of using race as a proxy for diet, ask the patient what the patient's diet is. Instead of using race as a proxy for genetic difference, either do a genetic test or ask about the patient's family history. So why isn't this happening? Why is race still being used? Well, I I think doctors, most anyway, go into the profession to help to heal people, you know? But I think that race is such a powerful construct. It's It's a kind of delusion that's reinforced by so many aspects of our society. And so they really have to think about patients outside of the biological concept of race. Mm. The fact that it is constructed means we can construct something else. And I I believe human beings are capable of that. That's Dorothy Roberts, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. You can hear her entire talk at TED.com. So if Dorothy Roberts argues that race is a bad proxy for trying to figure out how to diagnose a patient, what about sex? More and more, there is the realization that there are certain disorders that are expressed differently in women. This is Dr. Paula Johnson. I'm a cardiologist by training, and I'm president of Wellesley College. And Paula says there's a very simple reason why men and women don't always experience diseases the same way. We are different down to the cellular level. Because of that basic biologic difference, our uh, cells and then our organs um, are different. So if you're not really thinking about the fact that these sex differences occur, you might miss the disease. And this problem actually starts with clinical studies. Because up until the 1990s, many of them didn't include women. And even today, a lot of studies that include both men and women don't look at the differences between them. And in a way, if you have women and men in a study and then you give an average as the result, that's really not good for women or men, quite Mm. frankly, because it doesn't give the right answer for, for either of them. And the wrong answer or no answer at all can be devastating. Here's Paula Johnson on the TED stage. Some of my most wonderful memories of childhood are of spending time with my grandmother, Mamar. She loved life. And although she worked in a factory, she saved her pennies and she traveled to Europe. And I remember pouring over those pictures with her and then dancing with her to her favorite music. And then when I was eight and she was 60, something changed. She no longer worked or traveled. She no longer danced. My mother missed work and took her to doctors who couldn't make a diagnosis. And my father would spend every afternoon with her just to make sure she ate. And by the time a diagnosis was made, she was in a deep spiral. 
Now, many of you will recognize her symptoms. My grandmother had depression. Today, we know that women are 70% more likely to experience depression over their lifetimes compared with men. And even with this high prevalence, women are misdiagnosed between 30 and 50% of the time. Now, we know that women are more likely to experience the symptoms of fatigue, sleep disturbance, pain and anxiety compared with men, and these symptoms are often overlooked as symptoms of depression. And it isn't only depression in which these sex differences occur, but they occur across so many diseases. Today, we know that every cell has a sex. And what it means is that men and women are different down to the cellular and molecular levels, from our brains to our hearts, our lungs, our joints. And we've learned that there are major differences in the ways that women and men experience disease. But we're not making the investment in fully understanding the extent of these sex differences. We aren't taking what we have learned and routinely applying it in clinical care. So we have to ask ourselves the question, why leave women's health to chance? Say you're a doctor who, who really like earnestly wants to fix this problem fast. Are the tools available today to properly diagnose women and men differently for what might appear to be the same diseases? It depends on the disease. Certain um, disorders, yes, there are tools that can be used. You just have to be thinking about them. There's plenty of opportunity to think about how we apply our knowledge differentially to women and men. Just think about the whole pharmaceutical area. You know, it was about three or four years ago when the drug Ambien was found to have a very significant differential impact um, in women and men. And what it led to for the first time was the FDA changing the dose, the recommended dose for women. They cut it in half. Hmm. There are other drugs that are metabolized quite differently in women, leading to different effects. But, but I mean, there, there are still lots of diseases and treatments that, that, that do affect men and women the same way, right? Yes, and there are absolutely areas where women and men respond similarly. The question is, does similarly mean the same? Hmm. And you don't know the answer until you ask the question and look at the data. The issue is that the data are there, but they've not necessarily been used in practice. When we come back, Dr. Paula Johnson on how we can use the data to better diagnose and treat women. Today on the show, getting better. Ideas on how medicine can work better for all of us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Microsoft Surface. If you want to be productive but are out and about all day, meet the all-new Surface Go, the smallest Microsoft Surface ever. It's just over a pound and has a 10-inch touchscreen. This new Surface Go has the performance of a laptop but also the portability of a tablet. The Surface Go easily adapts to all your needs, from running office to helping you take care of everyday tasks. So what are you waiting for? It's time to go. Thanks also to Capital One. Know when your credit card purchases go through with instant purchase notifications on the Capital One app, so you don't miss a purchase, large or small. Technology this convenient could make history. What's in your wallet? Offered by Capital One Bank USA, NA Copyright 2018. Hi, this is Peter Sagal. For 20 years, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me has been making fun of the news with comedians and celebrity guests. We got silly limericks. We got terrible impressions. If you think the news is a joke, wait till you hear our show. New podcast episodes are available every Saturday. Hey. 
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, getting better. Ideas about medicine, conventional wisdom, and how so much of it is changing, and fast. And we were just hearing from Dr. Paula Johnson. A few years ago, she started looking at how men and women experience diseases differently. Here's Paula on the TED stage. Let's start with heart disease. Linda is a middle-aged woman who had a stent placed in one of the arteries going to her heart. When she had recurrent symptoms, she went back to her doctor. Her doctor did the gold standard test, a cardiac catheterization. It showed no blockages. Linda's symptoms continued. She had to stop working. And that's when she found us. When Linda came to us, we did another cardiac catheterization, and this time we found clues. But we needed another test to make the diagnosis. So we did a test called an intracoronary ultrasound, where you use sound waves to look at the artery from the inside out. And what we found was that Linda's disease didn't look like the typical male disease. The plaque is laid down more evenly, more diffusely along the artery, and it's harder to see. So for Linda and for so many women, the gold standard test wasn't gold. Now, Linda was lucky. She found us, we found her disease, but for too many women, that's not the case. We have the tools, we have the technology to make the diagnosis, but it's all too often that these sex differences are overlooked. I mean, would it be a stretch to say that that a, a man um, experiencing heart disease and a woman experiencing heart disease might very well be experiencing different diseases entirely? Oh, I think that that's a very good question. So another fact that we know today is if you look at the arteries of women and men who have had heart attacks, there are ways in which the blockage actually occurs. One is through plaque erupting, right? So there's plaque in the artery. That's the buildup of fat and everything. And, it, you know, a, a crack occurs and all the sticky white cells kind of go near it and, and it causes an immediate blockage. Okay. Then there's another way that it can happen, which is called plaque erosion. And that's almost like if you have the plaque in the artery and you rub sandpaper over it and it becomes rough. Well, it's the same sticky surface Hmm. and you can get a blockage. Now, what you see more often is in women, women are more likely to have plaque erosion than eruption. And the question is why? So are these the same disease when this happens? And we don't know today. And if we don't know, it means are we treating the right thing? Yeah. So we've been talking about sex difference in humans, but what about, you know, with animals? I mean, am I right that most animal research is done generally using male animals or or, or where they don't specify the sex at all? Oh, absolutely. Um, Now, why does that happen? Well, it's easier, right? If, if, If you don't have to include both sexes, It's easier because, well, you don't have to think about the differences between the two groups. It is, and it's more expensive. Is that really the reason not to do it? Because those are the studies on which we base human science, human research. So if we get it wrong from the cellular level and from the animal level, then we are already behind by time we get to the human level. That is a very significant problem. Yeah. How often in stem cell research are we paying attention to the sex of the cells? And then the next question becomes, is that potentially why we've not seen some of the benefits that we thought we should have seen by this point in time in this area of stem cell research? Now, let me share with you an example of when we do consider sex differences, it can drive the science. Several years ago, a new lung cancer drug was being evaluated. And when the authors looked at whose tumors shrank, they found that 82% were women. This led them to ask the question, well, why? And what they found was that the genetic mutations that the drug targeted were far more common in women. 
And what this has led to is a more personalized approach to the treatment of lung cancer that also includes sex. This is what we can accomplish when we don't leave women's health to chance. Imagine the momentum we could achieve in advancing the health of women if we considered whether these sex differences were present at the very beginning of designing research. Women's health is an equal rights issue as important as equal pay. And this is so important, not only for ourselves, but for all of those whom we love. Our legacy can be to improve the health of women for this generation and for generations to come. Thank you. Dr. Paula Johnson, she's now the president of Wellesley College. You can find her full talk at TED.com. Earlier in the show, we heard from Jennifer Brea, who caught a virus on a trip to Kenya and came down with a really high fever. At its highest was 104.7 degrees. But Jen never got better. She started getting strange symptoms. She would feel dizzy and numb, and she'd have moments when she couldn't even speak or write. She went from doing 20-mile bike rides to collapsing after just a short walk. And it just kind of got worse and worse and worse. Jen went to all kinds of specialists who didn't know what was wrong with her. And then one of them came up with a diagnosis, conversion disorder. He told me everything that you've been experiencing is psychosomatic, that the symptoms are real, but that they have no biological cause. That diagnosis, the idea that her symptoms were all in her head, left Jen feeling even more helpless. And then on top of that, she would later find out that her diagnosis, conversion disorder, used to be called hysteria. Jennifer Brea picks up the story from the TED stage. When my doctor diagnosed me with conversion disorder, he was evoking a lineage of ideas about women's bodies that are over 2,500 years old. The Roman physician Galen thought that hysteria was caused by sexual deprivation in particularly passionate women. The Greeks thought that the uterus would literally dry up and wander around the body in search of moisture, pressing on internal organs. Yes. <laughs> Causing symptoms from extreme emotions to dizziness and paralysis. These ideas went largely unchanged for several millennia until the 1880s when neurologists tried to modernize the theory of hysteria. Sigmund Freud developed a theory that the unconscious mind could produce physical symptoms when dealing with memories or emotions too painful for the conscious mind to handle. It converted these emotions into physical symptoms. This meant that men could now get hysteria, but of course, women were still the most susceptible. Why has this idea had such staying power? I do think it has to do with sexism, but I also think that fundamentally, doctors want to help. They want to know the answer. And this category allows doctors to treat what would otherwise be untreatable, to explain illnesses that have no explanation. The problem is that this can cause real harm. In the 1950s, a psychiatrist named Elliot Slater studied a cohort of 85 patients who had been diagnosed with hysteria. Nine years later, 12 of them were dead, and 30 had become disabled. Many had undiagnosed conditions like multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, brain tumors. In 1980, hysteria was officially renamed conversion disorder. When my neurologist gave me that diagnosis in 2012, he was echoing Freud's words verbatim. The problem with the theory of hysteria or psychogenic illness is that it can never be proven. It is, by definition, the absence of evidence. Jen, of course, didn't believe she had conversion disorder. But she had trouble convincing doctors that her symptoms were serious. I had this problem of when I was well enough to go to a doctor, I would look pretty normal. And then when I was experiencing my symptoms, I would never be able to go in. So she decided to start filming herself at home with her iPhone. I don't think I can get up off the couch. <sighs> and um, when I was able to bring in these videos... The right side of my face feels numb. My brain is misfiring. It just had changed the conversation when they could really see what it was like. Yeah. I figure it's good to just keep documenting. 
Okay, turn off the light. But even then, her doctors couldn't make sense of her symptoms. So, like, in the doctor's office, there was all these strange symptoms that had no pattern that they couldn't understand or describe or categorize or name. So Jen did something that a lot of doctors don't particularly like. I think one of the most annoying things for doctors that a patient can do is go on the internet and Google their symptoms. (laughs) And um, even though oftentimes I was Googling PubMed and nature and science and bringing them into my doctors, there was this sense that, you know, the internet is really unreliable, which it is. It's like a wild west and you'll find all kinds of information. But along with those studies, Jen found something else online. There are literally thousands of people that all have the same pattern of symptoms. The same symptoms Jen's doctors couldn't make sense of. This community of people who all had ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis. Myalgic encephalomyelitis, a disease that seemed to fit with the symptoms Jen was experiencing. So through that online community, Jen connected with ME experts across the country. I found a doctor in Boston at MASH General, a doctor in Miami, in New York, a doctor in Nevada, and a doctor in California. So I've actually been diagnosed five times with ME. Hmm. Why is it so difficult to diagnose? It's difficult to diagnose because it's not really a part of the medical school curricula. So... At most medical schools, you're not required to learn about the symptoms and the pathophysiology of the disease. So um, one doctor that I saw in Miami, when she was a professor of immunology, she had to sort of teach medical students during their lunch hour because it wasn't a part of the curriculum. Myalgic encephalomyelitis. You've probably heard it called chronic fatigue syndrome. The key symptom we all share is that whenever we exert ourselves, physically, mentally, we pay, and we pay hard. If my husband goes for a run, he might be sore for a couple of days. If I try to walk half a block, I might be bedridden for a week. It is a perfect custom prison. I know ballet dancers who can't dance, accountants who can't add, medical students who never became doctors. It doesn't matter what you once were. You can't do it anymore. It's estimated that about 15 to 30 million people around the world have this disease. In the U.S., where I'm from, it's about one million people. That makes it roughly twice as common as multiple sclerosis. Patients can live for decades with the physical function of someone with congestive heart failure. 25% of us are homebound or bedridden, and 75 to 85% of us can't even work part-time. How could a disease this common and this devastating have been forgotten by medicine? All around the world, ME is one of the least funded diseases. So in the U.S., we spend each year roughly $2,500 per AIDS patient, $250 per MS patient, and just $5 per year per ME patient. It feels like ME patients face this kind of this kind of dilemma because it's sort of sort of mysterious. No one is funding research into it, but then the only way to figure out what the mystery is is to fund it, right? Yeah, it's um, it's it's this sort of really weird situation where people say, "Well, we don't know anything about it yet." And I, whenever anyone says that to me, I kind of feel like I'm standing next to this like giant rock. And everyone's like, well, we don't know what's underneath that rock. Like, what could possibly be under? And then, like, lift it up. Just, like, lift it up and look, you know? You can't answer the questions that you don't ask. You can't understand what you don't study. You can't find what you're not looking for. Yeah. And I wonder if, if like, on a a more personal level, you were, like, you were going through this process constantly where you were asking yourself, like, you know, what's what's wrong with me? What's happening to me? And, and And then finding this community of people online probably made you feel like you you weren't the only one asking those questions. You know, it's a funny thing because being able to connect to people who are sharing your experience is profound. I, I thought I had a rare disease. For those first two years, I thought 
maybe I'm dying. No one could tell me what my prognosis was. No one could tell me what this was going to be like. Even if in that moment, what I was grappling with felt so big and so terrifying that I wouldn't survive it. The fact that other people had gone through that and had survived gave me hope that I would be able to find a way. What, 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 else, um, what else gives you hope? I think what is hard to sort of see from the outside is that um, humans are really adaptable and I've kind of grown into this. And, and so on the one hand, every day I try to live the life that I have as well as I possibly can. I'm also fighting for a better life at the same time. And I know that there are so many drugs I have never tried. I know that there are so many experiments that have never been run. And so I believe that if we just started trying to answer these basic questions, that we could find treatments and explanations for this disease um, within a matter of years. So I think that I could get a lot better, and I think that I could get a lot better while I'm still young. And that's really what I'm fighting for every day. That's Jennifer Brea. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. And by the way, those iPhone videos she took of herself at home, those actually inspired her to make a documentary about chronic fatigue syndrome. It's done mostly from her bedside at home. It's called Unrest, and it premiered earlier this year at Sundance. Thanks for listening to our show, Getting Better, this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and Rand Abdel Fattah, with help from Camilo Garcon and Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Thomas Liu. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at tedradiohour at npr.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. It's at tedradiohour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.